You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. These weeks right now, and so we decided to do something like this. And then it's just... Hashtag distraction chinchilla. Yes, yes especially <laughs> for your kids. What can they teach us? Yeah, well, and that is a great reason to care, for sure. And like you said, I like that. I like how you call them a barometer species. That's very, mm-hmm. uh, very good. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. So something cute and fluffy and cuddly and just adorable this week. Yes. A lot of fun researching the chinchilla. Yeah. I fell in love over and over and over just, Chris, watching them eat. Even just watching them eat, watching them groom themselves, just still shots on Google image, whatever, Mm -hmm. you name it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The chinchilla is just a really special, adorable animal. And if you're familiar, you're going to want to stick around because we have a lot of fun chinchilla facts. And if you're Mm -hmm. not familiar with chinchillas, you'll you'll get to learn a lot and you'll definitely fall in love as well. And Chris and I will also go into how they're actually endangered in the wild, which I think is probably fascinating to a lot of people, which is kind of crazy since they are so adorable and fuzzy and cute. And you may see them around in pet stores, but there's actually two wild populations and they are in need of conservation heroes like yourselves and us Mm -hmm. to, to keep them wild and living free and being super adorable. So we, we talked a lot about this week of trying to do something that was just, you know, uplifting and cute. You know, we're all home a lot more these, these weeks right now. And so we decided to do something like this and then it's just hashtag Distraction chinchilla. Yes. Especially for your kids. You know, they want to learn about something super cute and fun. And it does have an interesting conservation story that, that does need attention. It absolutely mm-hmm. needs to, they, they nearly went extinct in, in the early 1900s. Yes. They, they yes. were almost wiped out. They were almost wiped out. So, uh, luckily they're still hanging on. And just really quickly, you know, thank you to our listeners who are sharing our episodes. You know, we have tons of friends down in Australia, uh, baby langers one that comes to the top of my head on Instagram. Uh, Pip's always sharing our stuff and Lee down in, down in Sydney is sharing our stuff all the time. So thank we want to thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then just a quick shout out to Jill in Colorado, Miranda in Oklahoma. They sent us super sweet emails this week. They're loving the podcast and learning a lot. So thank you. Yes, and we love hearing from you. A couple of those emails, I even forwarded them to my mom. And it was like, see, mom, look. <laughs> All yep. this is for not. It's yes. a, People love it. So we love hearing from you, definitely. And uh, of course, if you find yourself at home with your phone, just go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review. If you've already subscribed, you're awesome, but I would love to see hopefully in the next couple of weeks, uh, a few more five-star reviews on iTunes because it really helps us out a lot. So please go do that if you get a chance. And if you're a chinchilla fan by the end of this, uh, that'll be awesome. Yes. Thank you. And you know, Angie, we're going to talk more about their fur later on, you know, which almost led to their extinction, but a chinchilla, I don't think a lot of people know what a chinchilla looks like. So, you know, it it is a rodent and we're going to learn about their history, which is very interesting, but they're, they're super unique. I mean, just super unique looking. Yeah. You don't instantly look at them and think of a mouse or a rat. Now I, for one, am a huge mouse and rat fan and I'm pretty much just biding my time until I can get the boys pet mouse of their own or mm-hmm, hamster mm-hmm. or something because mm-hmm. I just, I love them so much. But yes, a gentilla, the rodent family doesn't come to mind because they just look like a powder puff of a squirrel. And yeah. it's and like a squirrel and a rabbit mated. And this is what you get. It's yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah. A mouse does not 
come to mind. And as we dive deeper in the podcast, we'll learn a little bit more about their physiology where Mm -hmm. a lot of things I was reading, it was like, they do this differently than mice Mm -hmm. and rats. They do this differently than mice and rats. So I, I'll be excited to hear about your evolution of how they got put into that, that category. Right. Right. Um, Because yeah, it just doesn't, I I mean, like I, I think mice and rats are super cute, but this is times a thousand on the cuteness scale, (laughs) exponentially cute over here. And I think a lot of it is besides the fur, which makes them puffy. Like if you think Mm -hmm. of like an Arctic hare, an Arctic fox, or a husky, Siberian husky dog that just gives them that brown, fluffy look, they also have good size ears, not rabbit ears, but definitely not squirrel ears, right? So they're- In between, yeah, it's in between, yeah. A nice medium round size and- so then, of course, they have the the cute face with these very thick and brilliant whiskers. Mm-hmm, I don't think I mm-hmm. I don't. That's not a science term. Brilliant whiskers is not a science. Yeah, term. <laughs> that's a good one though. It's a good description. But they're really they're pronounced. They're a lot. They're yes. more they're more intense than what you would see on a typical rodent or even a squirrel. I feel like, yeah. And then their tail is just adorable and yeah. fluffy and long. And they're big. I mean. Mm-hmm. And they're much, much bigger, in my opinion, than mice. And I guess it depends on what city you live in. Some cities have pretty, pretty big rats. Big rats, they, mm-hmm. do. they do. But yeah, they're they're bigger than a squ- squirrels around here in Florida. I feel like. Uh yeah, bigger. I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the squirrels in Florida aren't, aren't that huge on the East Coast, but you know, uh, this one that the body length is eight to eleven inches long, or up to twenty twenty four centimeters. So yeah, you're right. Like almost a foot long. And then you add the tail because, right. you know, like I said, it's in between like a squirrel and a rabbit. It, the you tail add that extra to... sparkle fluff. Yes. <laughs> and it gets like six and a half inches long or 17 centimeters. So they are much bigger than you, than you would think. And then they weigh up to two pounds or 900 grams. Yeah. And, and their hind legs too are going to be a lot more muscular than a typical rodents there. That's where they almost resemble a rabbit from that point of view too. So yeah, they're just about, and if, if we're, I don't think we're doing it justice. No, so no you gotta look at a picture of them. Go to our to. show notes or good old YouTube or Google image as long as you're not driving and you guys can thank us later because they're darling. Yeah. I mean, their furs modeled yellow gray and, and that's the wild type. Now mm-hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about them being pets you know, over time through selective breeding there, you see silver to black, like different colors sure. with them now, you know, mm-hmm. and then all their, it, this is what gives them that beautiful appearance. Each hair ends in a black tip, no matter the coat color. So mm-hmm. that gives them that, that model. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and and then, and then just like, you know, we're, we're finding in our last three species, bald eagle, Monk seals, and now these, the females are bigger than the males. What were you just saying something? Because I just was on Google Image and I, I kind of zoned <laughs> out because they're it's, so cute. I'm just scrolling down. They're just they are they are adorable. So cute. They are adorable. But yeah, I was just saying that the 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 females are bigger than the males. So oh yes, okay. Yep, three in mm-hmm. a row. Three in a row. Mm-hmm. Now these are. I know, I know. So these are from the Andes Mountains. South America. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So one, there's two species and we'll get into that, but one used to range in Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. And then the other one strictly in Chile. But today they're only found in Chile, maybe the border of Bolivia, but they, they don't know. And they live in elevations of three to 5,000 meters. I mean, they're up in this harsh Andes mountain range and these animals, you're going to find out in their evolution, have gone through millions of years to develop this dense, soft fur that's you know, very dense. I heard a lot of people describe it. I've never touched a chinchilla, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm probably it's missing out. Like There's a large piece mm-hmm. of my life now that I've realized is incomplete because yeah. I've never pet a chinchilla. But p- people describe it as like the most softest thing they've ever felt like animal wise. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to the, the hair density, but it makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And that's why they almost went extinct. 
So Angie, I did some digging uh, to look at the Andes Mountains because now did you go near the Andes? I mean, in oh, South yes. America, you were oh, in yes. the Andes, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. I'm kicking myself for not being, I guess, uh, clever enough or wit have enough wherewithal to go uh, looking for chinchillas because I pretty much I started well I was all over, but I, I cut through the Andes, Andes Mountains for, heading from. Uh, Argentina and the Falls de Guasu area, and we headed west towards the Andes to a, a little resort town called Bariloche, which is just mm-hmm. like Lake Tahoe on steroids. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And then from Bariloche, I took a bus just directly to uh, Santiago, Chile. So that's the okay. capital. Ah. Uh, a lot of a lot of hustle and bustle going on. Beautiful architecture, amazing people, amazing food. And then another bus up into Lima, Peru, and so on and so forth. So I got to see a lot of the countryside. So I saw, I mean, the Andes are just breathtaking, uh, mm-hmm. like the Rockies. and But yeah, just incre- incredible, just beautiful. And so I I like traveling by bus because you can see a lot of, you can't, you don't stop everywhere, but you get to see a lot mm-hmm. of the, the, um, the landscape. And so just beautiful, but also very desert-like. And yeah. so yeah. when you start, when you, when you get to the west side, of the Andes, it's it's definitely, and you had north, like in North Chile, it's it, there's a lot of desert, and yeah. so yeah. Uh, what I was looking yeah. through and reviewing a lot of the chinchilla videos and just scenery from wild chinchillas, I I, I hearken back to those days uh, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of like I said, a lot of mine was just from bus and uh, not not really exploring around, tooling around too much. Just gives me more reason to want to go back. I know you saw the whole continent almost. I mean, geez, from the Amazon. Mostly, to the uh, yeah, yeah. There's, I didn't get, to, I didn't get into, um, I didn't get into Colombia, but now, mm-hmm. of course, with my one of my besties, Anna, I'll get to go mm-hmm. visit her hopefully, uh, and her family sometime. But I need to go back. I did very little. Spent not enough time in every country, and especially yeah, very little yeah. time in Brazil. So that's, of course, on my bucket right. list as well. So any any South American fans, let me know. I'll look. If, uh, <laughs> where what, I need to go. Yes. Yeah. Let me know where I yes. need to go and what couch I can stay on. Thank you. Yes. 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 So Angie, perfect. It, it, the Andes, like you said, it's very desert and it's a very unique ecosystem that's actually in danger. And this harkens back to the pika episode. That was the other cute, cute little mammal that we covered uh, that, that the chinchilla yes, Check rivals. that episode out. If they yeah. will, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, the pike is amazing. But we did talk about this and, and climate change having an impact on elevations. And this, I found a, found a study that was looking at the, the paramost part of the Andes Mountains. And this is altitudes above 12,500 feet. So it's, it's really up there. And this is, you know, like you said, it's very deserty. The weather is very cold, Pretty snowy. Harsh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and it fluctuates like a desert where it can be freezing and then go to 60 degrees Fahrenheit in the same day. So, but despite the, this paper is talking about just the unique ecosystem and this high altitude ecosystem that is home to over 5,000 species and 3,000 of which live nowhere else on earth. They just live in this Andes ecosystem. And so they're looking at the impacts of climate change and what they're saying is the outside of the poles, the Andes mountains are being affected by climate change than any, any other ecosystem on earth, which was surprising to me. Interesting. Yeah. Compared that. to anywhere else, the, the Andes is changing. Just Why? As fast. I think the altitude and where okay. it is in the Southern hemisphere, uh-huh. you know, their location. Sure. So, you know, they're, they're finding a, a lot of problem and, and I think it, it maybe it's just the, the way it, it, it's set up because the way they explain it is the paramos acts like a sponge, you know, and they, in quoting them, they say it collects water from the fog, the drizzle, melting mountaintop glaciers and stores it. And then it releases that water into the lowlands, which okay. is very critical to the millions of people living in Colombia and Ecuador. You know, so they're looking at this portion of the Andes Mountains and the and the effect of climate change, and because it's warming there faster anywhere outside the Arctic Circle. So the glaciers up there are melting. There's less rainfall in the mountaintops, and they're drying out. And then also, 
I've seen other papers and studies looking at, and we talked about this in the pica, as the low, lower elevations warm up, these species are migrating higher and higher. Yeah, I remember reading a cool study about just like a, a species, a tree that lives uh, in the alpine area that researchers have known in the past like 10 years. They It sounds like it's not that big a deal, but they're mm. migrating. They're like, I think it was about one foot, two feet higher up the mountain. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, what is, I mean, animals kind of make sense to me because I'm like, okay, well, they're hot. So they just go, they're, they're, they go up. But a tree for a tree to, a tree line to, to move a couple feet it north, is, yeah. or sorry, yeah. not north, but up a mountainside yeah. to try to get out of the hot weather. The it's just, it's, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. I've read that. There's a book on the Earth's mass extinction. This, this mm-hmm. next mass extinction that I've read that, that, that they're noticing, especially in the Andes, that you're right, the tree lines are changing. Mm. So that affects entire ecosystems. Everything, yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm going to try to explain the weather pattern because I think this will make more sense, uh, you know, how it's impacting. Now, Chris, are you going to talk to us about the windward and leadward side of a mountain? I I don't sail. I'm sorry. I <laughs> <laughs> I, I was only, not in the I Navy. I teach it in uh, the ecology section. I was not in the Navy, Andrew. And, they, and everybody, they all the students look at me like, oh my goodness, why is she doing this? And they're like subtly rolling their eyes. But then I give them my quick little trick as far mm-hmm. as it's really important for the wind and the way that the wind goes. Because I, when a mountain's near a big body of water or an ocean, let's say, like the Andes, the windward side of the mountain is the one that's by the ocean. And that's always okay. going to be a little bit more tropical. It's going to get more, it's basically going to get more rainfall. So it's going to be more green and a little cooler. And then the leeward side is the dry side of the mountain, the side of the mountain that's further away from the ocean or the body of water. And so that area is not going to get any rain. It's going to be really dry and desert-like. And okay. they still are rolling their eyes as you probably are. And that's mm-hmm. okay. But the way that you can remember it is the windward is the wet side. That's the wet okay. side by the water. Windward, okay. wet, water. That's how I teach. So I give little like little tricks and hints and, you know, razzle dazzles for you. So I, yeah, I don't know why I think of sailing or something. Well, I think it, yeah. <laughs> Sailing, sailing, right? Um, uh, but anyways, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So okay, now, that okay, we, well, now, now we know that now, that's how the Andes are set up like that. Yeah, parts of it. Yeah, and so now that we know that, you're going to talk to us about the climate there. Well, yeah, okay. So, and and I think this this helps illustrate how climate change is affecting these these places. So, in the Paramos, in the morning, there's clear skies up there. Like you said, it's like a desert, Mm -hmm. and the clouds are because due at night it cools down, so the clouds drop into the valleys. And then as the sun comes out, it warms up the earth and those clouds rise up the mountainsides. And that's where it carries this fog and water or drizzle. And this, they basically said this upward flow of moisture is the bluff, the blood supply of the Paramos. So what that depends on is these valleys warming up, right? To push those clouds up the mountainside. But what this team of researchers is finding and I'll post the link on the show notes so people can look at this data is the valleys are actually staying cooler and it's warming up at the top. So those mountain, those, those cloud cover is not going up the mountainside. So they're not getting that moisture into this dry area that desperately needs Yikes. it. These plants, yeah, it's already dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These plants and animals that need it. And so Basically, they said the the Paramos are warming up 1.6 times faster than the lowlands. That's so it's getting hotter at the top. So those yeah. clouds can't rise up to deliver that water. And it's starting, like you said, with, with the trees and everything, it, it's completely affecting the whole ecosystem where this is where the chinchilla lives. And the chinchilla totally depends on these plants to survive. Well, they... Not only does the, on the plants, but they need cool weather to survive. Mm-hmm. They actually mm-hmm. do not do well and can die from heat stress. Yes. So, yep. wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that just kind of leads me into why I care. I think the chinchilla is, is a great barometer species, kind of like the pika in these high elevations sure. of survival and, you know, the, the, the plant cover and, and what animals can survive up there as it turns into a desert. Like not just, not only is it like a desert, but talking about a completely dry, nothing alive desert. Up right. There. right. No, nothing has time. You said plants are migrating, but still, is there enough time for them oh, to make no. it to where they need yeah, to be? Yeah, it takes a long time. Sure, sure. Yeah. 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 So. Well, and that is a great reason to care for sure. And like you said, I like that. I like how you call them a barometer species. That's very, mm-hmm. uh, very good. Uh, I, besides being super cute and adorable and wanting to pet one, there's another really big reason to care about chinchillas or I think more empathetically like wild chinchillas that we're talking about on the podcast today Mm. since they're endangered because many years ago they were not endangered. They thrived as Chris mentioned through that, uh, uh, the whole Western Western side of the Andes up and down um, South America, which is a huge continent. And, and then of course now they don't, the range is very restricted. And I thought it was really interesting that the chinchilla is actually named for the chincha people of the Andes. Mm-hmm. And they, of course, did utilize some chinchillas for their fur to help keep them warm in the Andes Mountains, which a lot of indigenous people historically have done with wild animals to survive. And because indigenous people are so in touch with nature and the, their community and their ecosystem, they never take too much and everything thrives and is healthy. But of course, by the end of the 19th century, as Europeans came over, mm-hmm. uh, they also coveted this ultra soft fur and mm-hmm. pretty much almost wiped them out and yep. almost made them extinct around the early 1900s. And so it was estimated that in early 1900, a half a million chinchilla skins were exported mm-hmm. each year from Chile. And that's just. I mean, no species mm. can keep up with that. And so mm-hmm. it's, it just pretty much wiped them out. And I just think that we owe it to this little, these little guys and girls that are super cute and fluffy that to keep them happy and healthy and thriving in the Andes as a, they're a valuable part of the ecosystem. Um, they're mm-hmm. uh, on the food chain. They're an herbivore and a seed. We'll talk about, um, the fact that they eat. Uh, grasses and seeds. So they have some seed dispersal. And of course they, you know, are part of the food chain too for larger Mm -hmm. prey animals. Mm -hmm. And it's just, they, they gave so much to humans for so long. And we, especially, like I said, the um, Western society or whatever Mm -hmm. uh, exploited them so much that it's just, we owe it to them to keep them in the wild and, and help them out as much as possible. And so, Chris, the other thing, too, to think about is that chinchillas to this day are still farmed for their fur in certain countries. Mm. And so you could get on Google or don't do it, but there are chinchilla fur items for sale. And it is just not really sustainable. And, of course, the chinchilla fur that's on most of these items or outfits or clothes or whatever is from chinchillas that are farmed. And yeah. that's a whole nother can of worms to open for like a whole nother podcast as far as farming animals for fur. And right. so I think maybe we should talk about doing that at a, at a different time for a different podcast. But um, mm-hmm. when that's the case, uh, chinchillas of course are pets. And we're going to talk mm-hmm. more about that on the podcast, whether they make good pets or not, since they are technically still wild animals. But that's, this is much different than the, the, the fur farm places are much, they're not pets. They're don't, they typically don't live in very no. good conditions and they're not always treated the best. And I was floored because in the United States, they don't, they don't allow chinchilla farming. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's still allowed in a couple of, um, so you're, Eastern European countries and uh, maybe a couple Asian countries. But the good news, at least in the United States, is that fur farming of chinchillas is not allowed and foxes, it's banned. And there's legislation to phase out mink fur farming uh, by 2024. So 
that's great uh, for here in the U.S. But in general, globally speaking, these statistics are a little old. But in um, in China, 60 million mink, 13 million foxes, 14 million raccoon dogs. What? Uh, oh, geez. We've been. I need yeah. to. We need to cover raccoon dogs. That's big yeah. on my list. And yeah, the yeah. European Union, um, forty-two point six million mink, uh, about three million foxes, uh, um, one hundred fifty thousand raccoon dogs, quarter million chinchillas, in the wow. European Union, and uh. then of course uh, rabbits as well. So, yeah, just don't buy fur coats uh, no. if you like the look yeah. or fur, whatever. There's amazing fox fur or faux fur, however you want to say it. Not out fox, there. yeah, not fox fur, not fox fur. Yeah, uh, faux, uh, faux, faux, right? Faux, yeah, yeah, faux. yeah faux. <laughs> faux fur, fake, fake fur, fake fur, fake yeah. fur, and nobody can yeah. tell it's fake. And you're doing these critters, but even then, yeah, even then, it's people. You're not don't sending know a good message, real really. No. So, I mean, I think the thing is, is it's just, I don't know why. I, I just this just really struck me because once again, and we'll talk about it. Chinchillas are also pets too, and mm-hmm. they actually really bond with their humans. And I'm not, um, I'm not either pro or anti having a chinchilla as a pet, but I just they have personalities, and, and we'll talk mm-hmm. more about that. And so, just knowing that they have to suffer for a silly fur coat is just goofy. Because in well, this day and age, it's, mm-hmm. you know, the indigenous people, of course, need the fur, but mm-hmm. now we have, I mean. If you live in a northern climate and you haven't worn polar fleece, yeah, I know. Synthetic, yeah. life changing, game changer. Yeah. There's yeah. they make such high quality things to keep warm mm-hmm. without having to actually use animal fur. So yeah. Yeah. anyways, that's my takes, that's my yeah, my message for the box. day. My service <laughs> announcement. Soapbox. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, it's like, good. Well, it takes over a hundred chinchillas to make one coat. Like it's horrific. Right. I mean that's yeah, just, it's horrific. Yeah, yeah. It's not sustainable. Yeah. It doesn't I mean, it, we almost like that need almost wiped them out. And so, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. obviously the, the farming them now, they are not taking them from the wild anymore, but I think, you know, we owe it to their wild counterparts to stop the yeah, farming. Yeah. I mean, they still are getting poached too. So I mean, of that's course, a problem. Yeah. yeah. That's still a problem. Well, you know, to talk about their history too, it's interesting. I mean, this is, uh, there's two species and from, they're from the order Rodentia. The family Chinchillidae. Now, there's chinchillas, and then you might know this because you've been down there, but the Viscachic, Viscachas, Viscachas? Viscacha. Viscacha. Okay. Okay, those? <laughs> it's like <laughs> they, 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 they look like rabbits, but they're not closely related. They, how do they get to look like rabbits? Through good old convergent evolution, which we've talked about. I love yeah. it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So they're from the s- same family. Those now, guys are chinchil- cute though. We'll have to cover them. Yeah. Viscaches. I know. Uh, okay. Viscaches. Okay. So they're from the, the genus chinchilla. And so the two species. Now this one, the short-tailed chinchilla, this is a very hard one. Chinchilla, chinchilla. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's ex- I, yeah when that a, happens, you're one. like, yes. Yes, I know. All right. Now, the long-tailed chinchilla is chinchilla lanagera. Yeah, I did that. It's easy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So those are the two species. Now, rodents, again, I love covering rodents. You know, the first mammal dates back almost 200 million years ago, looked like a small mouse. The rodents themselves, around 70 million years ago is when they, they rose. The common ancestor was glearies with primates, tree shoes, tree shrews, and lemurs. So one went off to be primates, one went off to be rodents. And because they had such a short generation interval, they could breed quicker. They they just flourished. They sure. flourished. Mm-hmm. So much so, and I've covered this before, but I don't know if people remember, 40% of all mammals on Earth are rodents. Mm-hmm. 40% of all mammals are rodents. See, we can just switch to a rodent podcast. I would be I know. super down with that. Oh, there's so many species. So many species. Now, in South America, the rodents first appeared about 41 million years ago. And these are the chinchilla's ancestors. And can you guess where they came from? North America. First, no, no. No. Where did the animals come from? Where did our primates come from? Remember? Oh, Africa. Yeah. Yeah. How? (laughs) 
How did they come over? Oh. From Africa? On a land bridge? Life no. raft. <laughs> yes. We're not a life raft. Uh, I think you forget all the data we cover. Yeah, oh, the raft yeah, of vegetation. Like, I got I, I gotta I gotta kick some out before I know. I mean, I, I just know. kept watching cute chinchillas. So I mean that's gonna be my I answer know. to anything you ask me this pod. <laughs> Is the answer cute chinchilla? Because if it's not yeah, okay. I, I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we've done what? I mean, 150 official episodes. I think we're up to like 200 episodes. I get it. I get it. So there's, it's, it's some of the stuff you kind of forget about. But yeah, they came over on rafts made of vegetation and reading about this a little bit more because that's how the lemurs came over and not lemurs. The, uh, the early primates came over. That's how the lemurs got to Madagascar, the other side of Africa. Mm-hmm. But the earliest primates came over on these rafts of vegetation, and they figured it took them about one to two weeks. They'd get on these rafts somehow, and they'd float out to sea, and then it's live, nuts. and then two weeks know. later they that's showed crazy. up in South South America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's why I didn't log in my memory because I just have a hard not. I don't want to say obviously not believing it, but mm-hmm. it just seems so incredible to me. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but it's just, yeah. It's hard to fathom that. No, it's, yeah. It's I mean, just, I get annoyed if I'm like driving for 15 minutes in traffic. I two weeks ma- in a raft. I couldn't imagine being on a little yeah, I know. raft for two weeks crossing the well, If you got some food, you got some food and you know, and you're, yeah. you have nowhere else to go and hopefully you have so it's some an adventure. more of, mm-hmm. and more of your kind on that, that large raft. I just, it would be amazing to, to see that happen. Now looking at the, the tree and, and who they're most related to, which might surprise you a little bit is not what the big, the big rodent down there, the capybara. Mm-hmm. They're, they're kind of them and the Guinea pig are closely related, but they're actually closest relative is the Nutra. Okay. We have those in uh, the South. Yeah. Here yeah. in the United so States. I thought, mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that was, that was uh surprising. So, and then the naked mole rat, they're actually more closely related to the naked mole rat than they are, say, to squirrels or wow. other types See, of mice. They're yeah. always filled with fun facts. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the the earliest relative, uh, Ademis termasi, the mouse of the Andes, uh, that's the the oldest known rodent found there. That's the one that was 41 million years ago. And then the there's one oh, do i even want to try this uh evascacia frazanetti there you go is the oldest known relative to chinchillas and viscachas viscachas mm-hmm. yes those um so that is the one that that that's been around for, so so they've been around for millions of years you know it's it's taken them you know a couple million years to evolve into what they are today you know, to be able to survive in these high altitude. Cute chinchilla. Climates. Final answer. <laughs> All right. So I've done this one before. So I do have a new one for you, but the largest rodent ever, I just had to cover it again. I, I had know. To. It's, big, I'm, it's like six foot or something, right? A couple it's, hundred pounds. Yeah. A couple hundred. 2,600 pounds. Oh my gosh. It's like a ton <laughs> and some change. The Joseph or it's, like it's like a hippo, a hippo rodent. It looks, yeah, it looks like a hippo. That's the amazing. Joseph. Artigasia Manessi lived about two million years ago in South America, weighed over a ton, almost th- over a thousand kilograms, was as long as 10 feet, stood as ha- tall as five feet. It's <laughs> this giant rodent, teeth 12 inches long. So, Whoa. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, I had to just cover that one again because we always mention it. So I did find the smallest rodent on earth, hmm. which I don't even know if you, you there's no way I had no Pick idea me what shrew? this thing was. No, this thing is the no. Balochistan pygmy jerboa. I got pygmy right. Yeah, yeah. The world's smallest species of rodent weighs less than 0.13 ounces. Oh my has gosh. A, has a body length of 1.7 inches and a tail that can get up to long to three inches. So like a fingernail kind of? Yeah. It, well, 1.7 inches. Yeah, it's yeah. tiny. It lives in... uh Pakistan and Afghanistan. So the Cute. Baluchistan pygmy jerboa. I, th- I think everybody should look at this thing and it, it will make you smile. It is adorable. It is adorable. Now, some good stuff about chinchillas. They are one of the longest lived rodents in yes. human care 20 years. They can 20, live 20 years. years. Yeah. 
And let's That's a remember, commitment. yeah, we'll, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll touch on that again when we talk about mm-hmm. chinchillas as pets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is, I mean, uh, the typical mouse lifespan is like one to three years. Yeah. Rats as well. Um, mm-hmm. So that, is, I mean, we're talking 10 times. Yes. Yeah. They live quite a long time. About 10 years in the wild is what I found average. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. T- you know, if, if they can survive up there. And, you know, some of the things I read is the red blood cells can take up more oxygen. Mm-hmm. So that that's how they live in these, these high altitudes. Sure. You know, which, which again, for science would be interesting to study a little bit more too, because, you know, our high altitude climbers and stuff, um, mm-hmm. I'm sure that's something. Yeah. That... They're able to carry more oxygen than the average critter, mm-hmm. which is really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they survive there. Now, before we get to the hair a little bit, some other facts. They're high jumpers. Six so that's feet. A, I know. That's insane. That's yes, insane. That's, that's almost, almost as up to me. They jump up to my shoulder. Oh, yeah. If you think about it, it's basically they can jump from the ground up onto the top of a door. Like, yeah. Yeah. Which is what it's my crazy. friend's chinchilla used to do. Oh, really? Eeyore. Yeah. I'll talk a little <laughs> bit more about Eeyore. He'll be okay. highlighted here soon. But yeah. All so, right. no, like serious yeah. jumpers. Yeah. Now, like Angie said, the, they have that dense fur coat, so they don't pant or sweat. So they do overheat. Mm-hmm. They can't overheat. So yeah. they, the only way they cool off is they pump blood through their large ears, almost like an African elephant. Yeah. You know, that's one of their ways they heat dissipate. Yeah. So that's why their ears have less, less hair on them than the rest yeah. of the body. Yeah. Well, and it's just so interesting when you take an animal that evolved over hundreds of millions of years to, adapt to a specific climate, to a niche such as living up in the Andes in this desert-like climate, that they have all these adaptations. And one of it is they is basically the fact that there is like scarce food and water availability mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. drastic temperature variations. And so Chris, chinchillas have an extremely low metabolic rate, which is also unique for a rodent. Because what's just the general, the general metabolic rate rule kind of thing is the smaller you are, the faster your metabolic rate is. And mm-hmm. so when I was learning to care for rodents, especially mice and rats, uh, when I worked at the children's zoo, at, I worked with some very lovely, lovely, lovely little guys. I, one of the key things I learned is because they have such normal mice and rats, rodents have a very high metabolic rate. So they actually need to have access to food like all the time and water Mm -hmm. all the time that they Mm -hmm. can, you know, get sick very quickly if they go too long, especially without water, but food as well, because they just, Mm -hmm. they're like, their heart rates just, they just have a, it's just going, they're burning energy. They have a high metabolic rate. I wish I could coin some of that, but Mm -hmm. I hearken (laughs) over to more of the chinchilla side of things with a slow metabolic rate. And I could probably do better with scarce food as well, but I, I don't I'm actually eating more <laughs> as of late. So uh, with yeah. all this time on my hands, it's, uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think that, that there's very fascinating and, and obviously this, the chinchilla's metabolic rate slowed down throughout years and years and years and years and years of evolution in order mm-hmm. so that they could live in this pretty unique High altitude. Biome, yeah. And biome, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. just love, it's just so, animals are so cool. They yeah. are. And it's, yeah, it's just all the different species we cover and how they've all adapted to that environment and the niches they play and mm-hmm. how they, it, it, it's just the circle of life, the web of life and how it's all interconnected. And that's, again, I think highlights why we fight so hard and do this each week. Tell these stories. You know, go to different places on earth and, and look at these animals because it's just, we got to fight for them. We have yeah, to keep fighting like they for belong. Them. That's where they belong. They don't yeah. belong in a fur farm. I mean, that's no, just no, not great. No. Now, it's a perfect seg- segue, Angie. Now we get to talk about their fur. Yes, so, the best part of the whole pod. Their fur. Yeah. Yeah. So each hair is about one and a half inches or 40 millimeters long. And I read that we have one hair per follicle. Mm-hmm. Where a chinchilla has sixty to ninety hairs per follicle, so that is why their fur coat is so dense and soft. And and soft. Yeah. And with that, with that sixty to ninety per follicle, they have the densest fur 
of all mammals that live on mm-hmm. land. Yeah. The only one that has a denser coat is going to be a sea otter, which we need to cover that here real soon. Yes. Yes. Talk yes. about since clearly if we're talking about cute animals, that's right up there as well, right? I Who know, doesn't I love know. an yeah. otter? Oh my gosh, let alone a sea otter on the kelp bed and hugging their babies. Yeah, I know. Oh I my know. goodness. But yeah, so I mean, they win. They win the physiology mm-hmm. Guinness World Book records, whatever, for having amazing dense fur and. Obviously, it's important for them where they live. That's why they evolved that way. But also, it kind of made them a target for the fur industry. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that that's it's so adorable about these, and and I've known this about chinchillas, is they take dust baths. Yes. And yeah, so they they get the dust, and that helps you know the, get rid of the dry, flaky skin. You know, again, also animals do dust baths to fight parasites. And also prevent their coats from getting fungus. So they do take these little dust baths. It's so cute. I've seen yeah, them do this and before. The, and of yeah. course, the pet, a pet chinchilla needs to do that. It makes them very happy. But in the wild, as Chris mentioned, is a natural behavior where they will take these dust baths in volcanic ash. Mm-hmm. So nice and dry. <laughs> yeah, they don't want any water yeah. contact with their fur. Mm. It's just, it's, their fur is just uh, too dense for any of that. But yeah, because the fur is so dense and with these dust baths, they don't really have any fleas or any other parasites. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're so, so cute. They're so cute. Now, one thing related to fur uh-huh. I want to talk about is is predators. Okay. So they, they are animals that do prey on them include, you know, birds of prey, skunks, uh, cats, dogs, or, you know, different cat-like species, dog-like species, snakes. But they do have two, uh, two ways of defense. One's a spray urine. And the other is fur slip. Did you read about that one? It's so cute. I did. Yeah. 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 I mean, what, how cool are they? Yeah. Clever. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So if uh, something catches them, they'll just automatically release a bunch of fur that the predator will have in its mouth and just gets a mouthful of fur rather than the animal and the animal can, can get away. So and it, it, it's not shedding. It just, it's a defense mechanism. And they, they use this quite a bit and they can do it like, especially if, if under human care, if you scare them or whatever, they can actually release a bunch of fur in your hand, which you don't want. But that, that was really, really cute. Really, really cute. Now looking at what they eat, Angie's already alluded to that, you know, eat a lot of seeds, small insects, uh, leaves, uh, sometimes fruits. And, you know, they're, they're a folivore and granivore. Yeah. And so they, re- which are types of herbivores. But right. yeah, I did read that they might eat insects too. So some classify them as omnivores, but I don't think they're a true omnivore. They're no, that's probably on a rare occasion. Yeah, yeah. And where they get their water, it's not you know they go find a stream or something. Is, is cactus? It's not just cactus, but bromelades and ferns. So that's where they'll get their water source. Yeah. So it's not like they have a pond anywhere they no, can go. No, no, not that. Yeah, not yeah. that high up. I think the. Most important nutrition fact is that they're super cute. Once again, that's always my answer. Oh, yep. Uh, yep. When they eat, they hold their food with their front paws and nibble on it. And their mm-hmm, little noses mm-hmm. move and they've got their whiskers. And they'll often sit back on their haunches or their, their like hind legs. Mm-hmm. And kind of like a hamster you might have seen and just eat and be cute. And that's like what right. they do. And those that's like what I was watching. <laughs> I know, I, I know. I was trying to learn about them in the wild and I kept being like, oh, this is so relaxing just to watch this cute little, like it's like a bunny eating a carrot, right? Like just super yeah. cute. And uh, it's also important to note, uh, because they're in the rodent family, their teeth do constantly keep growing throughout the mm-hmm. 10 to 20 years they might live. And it's mm-hmm. usually the food that they eat that you know, gnaws the, or wears the teeth down. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of leads into talking to them as pets. Yes, Chris. And this is the first time for, I did, a, I did like a pre-interview for this podcast because I was really curious about owning chinchilla as a pet. And as I've never, I've never owned one or really been around a pet chinchilla. And so my dear friend, Cassie, one of my best buds uh, from Michigan State, go green, go white, go green, go white. Anyway, sorry about my little Spartan cheer there. 
but she, she owned one. And when she was growing up, her family did, and that was their main pet. They didn't have any other pets. And so I did a pre-interview with her, uh, yesterday evening to just really discuss the pros and the cons now that she's looking back. And so this little two minute blurb goes out to Eeyore, uh, her pet chinchilla, which she, she loved. And there's some obvious pros to owning them. Uh, she couldn't have a dog because they lived in the city and they just didn't have time. So a smaller mammal animal was a better fit for her family. And so that, you know, that would go into the pro category. Um, also really adorable. So there's another pro, uh, big personalities, uh, very clever, uh, curious, inquisitive. So that's always fun to have a pet that has some personality and is really interactive. And she said that, uh, another pro was, is that they are super sociable. Like they really like their humans that they're around. And so you felt like it wanted to be around you. So therefore it falls more into the dog category than most cats. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Cats are so, like whatever. So there, so, so it's smaller and it, it, it obviously eats commercialized pellets and you can get it some hay and there's just a ton of information. If you are a person that's interested in owning a pet chinchilla, I beg of you, please, please, do mm. your research uh, about how much it costs, how much space they need, what they eat, things like that, what they need. Because some of the cons that she stressed, looking back on it, is that because they are really social and they do bond with their human family, is that they need a lot of attention. So unlike maybe like a hamster or a pet mouse or something like that, or a snake, for instance, mm. uh they can actually get depressed if they don't have enough interactions with their humans. And I don't think there's anything more depressing than a depressed chinchilla. That's just like lethargic, no, and, sit- I know, and, I know, lethargic but- and sitting in its cage. Uh, and that's after talking with Cassie is when I really kind of went down the, the, um, the chinchilla fur farming rabbit hole mm-hmm. of just, Oh my gosh, this is so, so horrible. Because Horrible, knowing yeah. that about them, learning more about how they are when they're kept under human care, that they really need – She's so, so Cassie said they really need a lot of exercise. Obviously not the same as walking a dog, but she actually said it was similar. Like they had to every day, a couple times a day, make sure that they got Eeyore out and literally they would lock off, lock off part of their house and let them just bounce mm-hmm. off the walls. But <laughs> they couldn't leave him unattended because – like a rabbit or a yeah, hamster they, trouble. They, with those, with those teeth, they chew on wires and other really, really bad things that you don't want them to chew on. And you can't really train them not to do that since it's like, they're so wild animals. So, so they'd watch him and, and she had fun with it. Like she loved interacting with him, but for a lot of people or the certain, she's an animal nature science person as well. But for a lot of people that would almost be probably too much work because they're probably thinking it's more like a, maybe like a mouse that perhaps doesn't need as much, although they should have exercise wheels. So with that information, uh, all the listeners out there can decide for themselves. But if, if you do, Oh, Oh, sorry. The other really big con, <laughs> sorry, this is mm-hmm. almost, they're nocturnal. So they can often be, depending on how you care for them, they can also be really busy at nighttime. So depending on, where you house them. And if you're nocturnal as well, that might not be the best time. Uh, your schedules may, may not work out. And the other con is that they do live for 20 years. And so that's a huge, huge commitment. And Eeyore lived a lot, a lot longer than they ever thought. Chinchilla, pet chinchillas hopefully can, can act as ambassadors and get people excited about wild chinchillas and wanting to save their wild counterparts. Right, right. And they, I mean, very interesting story on how they became pets. And it was uh, an American, uh, Matthias Chapman in the 1920s, got permission from the Chile government to take some out. And he carefully brought them back to the United States, took over a year to acclimate them to low altitudes. Wow. And right. Yeah. 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 So every pet chinchilla today in the U.S. is a descendant from 11 founder animals that he brought back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
So anyways, yeah, very interesting. And, and they are social, Angie. I mean, I, some of the things I read, this was, I would die to see this. And I don't know if we would see it because there's so few of them left. But is it true that, I mean, they're very social. They live in family groups called herds. Yeah. And of over a hundred of them, like. Yes, Chris, chinchillas are absolutely social. They do not like being alone and mm-hmm. in the wild. I don't know if they're going to pair up or group up with a hundred, but they're just, they don't like being alone. And so that's as a pet too. That's why they, and they really need that interaction or they can get a little depressed. And because of this social nature, uh, you're, there's not going to be much fighting. Uh, it's pretty rare and aggressive behavior in the wild is very, very rare. If it's during Breeding season, the dominant female of the herd can be aggressive to both other females and even the male that's trying to breed her. That's only due to the nature of breeding itself. But in general, they're nocturnal and or crepuscular. So the activity at dusk and dawn, really high activity. Mm -hmm. In, In the Andes, they typically make their homes by burrowing in underground tunnels or nesting like on rock crevices and, and along, and, and they want to be nesting and hanging out with, of course, a lot of other chinchillas, which is super cute. And that's why mm-hmm. I'm bummed that I did not go on a hike looking for wild chinchillas when I was uh, going through Chile. So, yeah, but, yeah. and they, they, as a social species, they definitely produce a lot of vocal communications. Uh, they can be bark, squeals, chirps, grunts that can all, basically tell one another you know, what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Yeah, no, it just, it, it makes me think when you talked about Cassie and how she said they're clever and curious and stuff like that. Some of the, okay, so we're going to roll into repro, but one of the things I read is, is dad's a good dad. Yay. Cute chinchilla daddies. Gotta love them. Absolutely. Yay. Yeah. 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 But some of them are social. Well, Chris, what I found really interesting is a lot of the reproductive biology, even though they're bred for the pet industry and then, of course, bred for the fur farms that we're not fans of, uh, we still, there's still a lot of, a lot of things, they're reproductive things that we don't know about, which I was shocked by that because we, of course, with the mouse and the rat, we know so much about their cycles. But what is known is that in generally female chinchillas are monogamous. And that a breeding season will occur between November and May here in the Northern Hemisphere, and which is our winter, and then between May and November in the Southern Hemisphere, which is their spring. So that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Females can have two litters per year. Uh, it just depends. But digging a little bit deeper into the research, I found it fascinating, Chris, that like with their estrus cycles, we know so much about horses and pigs and domestic mm-hmm. animals and the dog and, mm-hmm. and, uh, but their estrus cycles not and very classified. It, it says it ranges from 15 to 90 days, hmm. depending on what research group you're going with. Uh, they, they say, okay, it's on average 28 to 35 days, but, uh, it's just still a lot of unknowns and it probably depends on, I guess, maybe what hemisphere the animals in. Uh, but it's, it, they're still working out the kinks and they, and they want to work out the kinks to study a lot about the reproductive physiology to learn more to potentially help other endangered rodents or like the wild chinchilla. So if we can learn more about their reproductive physiology through ones that live under human care by using techniques like hormone manipulation and AI and things like that, it would be awesome. But at this point with the chinchilla, we're just, we're not, we're not really that far. Um, right. Right. But what is known is when they do breed, uh, a gestation is about 111 days. So three months. So that's a lot longer than a typical mouse. And when the babies are born, they're pretty well developed and they'll weigh about 35 grams and they're, I have lots of fur. So once again, super cute, right? Ah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, no, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. The moms will lactate for about six to eight weeks and 
they become sexually mature around eight months old, but typically I don't think they, they will breed until their first or second full year. And then looking at conservation, Angie, you know, their history, it's, it's interesting that the, uh, the ancient Incas hunted them obviously for their meat and their fur and actually Mm -hmm. kept them as pets too, which is kind of interesting, (laughs) you know, (laughs) kind of an ancient, ancient pet, but it really, the, the fur industry became really popular in the 1700s in the 1800s. That's when it really became commercialized and they were almost extinct by the early 1900s. I mean, Mm -hmm. they were just that close to extinction. Yeah. And Chile passed a law in 1929 and so that, that definitely helped save them. So good job today. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, both the long tailed and the short tailed are listed, listed as endangered by the IUCN. Yeah. I mean, they thought they were extinct in 1953. They thought there was none left in Chile. Mm-hmm. And so now there, there is. And you're right. So this, the short tailed is endangered, found only in Chile. They don't know the population, but it is low. And this is the one that may be in Bolivia too on the border there. But, you know, again, IUCN has a small population, highly fragmented, low genetic diversity, large inbreeding. So all problems that could lead to their extinction still. Sure. So that that's a concern. The long-tailed chinchilla is only found in Chile and it's endangered with a population of about 5,000 animals, just over 5,000. Data hasn't been updated in a while. In the late 90s, they can only find 42 different colonies in the wild. So, but they're still declining because, you know, hunting and trapping and poaching still going on. They're still, you know, capturing them to, to be reared as pets, things like that. And then you have also cattle grazing in these, some of these areas, mining, firewood. So illegal logging, anything like that is going on in that part of the world. That's on top of the climate change that's going on in the Andes. So there, there is a lot of threat to the wild population of these animals. And so we need to keep our eyes on the Andes and we definitely will be doing more species from, from that area of the planet. Now, before I give conservation tips, should we go a good conservation organization? There's yes. gotta be one out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was really happy uh, to find somebody out there fighting hard for them. And the group I want to give a huge shout out today is Save the Wild Chinchillas. They can be found at savethewildchinchillas.org. And since 1995, uh, Save the Wild Chinchillas has been restoring and protecting essential habitat for endangered chinchillas. And they also help restore protect the habitat that they live in from further de- degradation. And they have mission to once again, protect the habitat where the chinchillas live, but also educate people in the area and involve people worldwide. So not just mm-hmm. in the, not locally, of course you need people on board, but then getting people that aren't from South America and have never heard of chinchilla or wherever, if somebody living in Europe has a pet chinchilla to kind of start learning and paying attention about what's going on with, with the endangered wild chinchillas. So you can find them on Facebook and then uh, they have a, a beautiful website where they actually have some cameras up so you can click on them and see some wild chinchilla behavior and fall in love all over with them again. And just, they have other great uh, resources on their website. So like them on Facebook and uh, definitely check out their website. You will not be disappointed. Nope. Nope. They are just too adorable. Now, so conservation tips this week. Don't wear fur. Gonna, yeah, that, there you go. There, there's one. That don't come ever... across aggressive. Sorry. I'm just, I'm, no, I'm no, all fired don't. up, man. I don't know. This know. It really got to me this week. Yeah, they're so cute. They're so cute. No, I just, here's a reminder is, is wash clothes in cold water. And I've said this a couple of times. It's so funny, Chris. My mom and I kind of have that uh, back and forth because she's like, I mean, she's always thought I was a little like messy and stinky because of Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. my lifestyle with all the animals and exercise and all that and kids now. But I always wash in cold unless there's like a real issue, like my cat peed on something or, you know, there's Mm -hmm, like a, mm -hmm. because it just, Mm -hmm. it, 
with our detergents in this day and age, like seriously, I know it does not they, matter. They clean pretty well. They clean pretty well, and that's just a reminder. And and then hang dry your clothes if you can. But here's a new one: use dryer balls when you can. So this I, I found was interesting. I haven't come across this before. So and, and, the, and it's, the question was why use wool dryer balls? And, and it's going to depend on your dryer. If you have an ancient one that doesn't have a sensor, it may not work. But if you have a more modern one that has sensors, using wool dryer balls can de- decrease the drying time by up to fifty percent. What? Fifty percent cut in half? Yeah. So I've also decreases some. wrinkles. Yeah, decreases wrinkles. No static and is safe for people with sensitive skin. Yeah. So, we've been trying to hang more in general, but of course in Florida, there's just some wet days mm-hmm. where that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. The humidity. And yeah. I just always thought dryer balls were for people that wanted their clothes to smell good. And I, I don't really care about mm-hmm. that or dryer sheets in general. I just thought it was a waste. Yeah. I had yeah. no idea that if you get the right kind of dryer ball, the that wool, it yeah. will, re- I mean, it makes sense. I get it now that you're yeah. saying it. Yeah. This is why we love you, Chris. Yay. I know. So there you go. So everybody go buy some wool dryer balls and start using them. And then if you don't have a sensor one, you can just check your clothes to see if they're dry. But it's supposed to cut it almost in half. So less energy, saves your saves you some money each month, and you can donate that to you know, save the chinchillas. I love so, it. Awesome. Save the wild chinchillas.org. Check yeah. them out. And you yourself can be a conservation hero by getting people you know, um, either on your mm-hmm. Instagram feed or your TikTok. We got to get on the TikTok, Chris, uh, and <laughs> or Facebook. Yeah. Share the information. Education mm-hmm. is power. Knowledge is power. Uh, you can help us be conservation heroes just by getting the word word out there that there are actually wild chinchillas. They are endangered. They need us to care about them, and they need us to help. So, thank you. Yep. Stay tuned. We'll be back next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.